Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in Acts chapter 27. There's only this chapter and the next chapter left. We're almost done. We're going to do a few more weeks in Acts and then we'll kind of shift gears um, in a couple weeks. I'm going to Uh, On the 23rd, I'm going to share my testimony, kind of my story as we've been talking about what does it look like to share our story. I'm going to share my story on July 23rd. On July 30th, uh, Pastor Darren's big brother is going to be here to preach for us. And I can't wait for the stories he's going to share. Um, Because we have heard a lot of stories from Darren over the years about his brothers, have we not? And so by my recollection, this is the first time uh, Dwayne gets to preach for us. So we're looking forward to that. And then August 6th, Braden's going to preach for us, uh, which is fantastic. And we're looking forward to hearing him preach and kind of give us an update of what's going on in his life. And then on August 13th, we'll begin our new series. And I'm looking forward to that. So uh, exciting things in the next few weeks. But today we're going to look at Acts chapter 27. Um, and as we do, what has happened is Paul and Agrippa, remember Agrippa, he was, uh, he was the one listening to Paul's story, and Agrippa made a huge deal about this hearing as it was. When we read it in scripture, it sounds like a conversation between two men, but what it really was is Paul coming in in a legal hearing to make a defense against the accusations that people have brought up against him. Now, here's the, cool, here's the good thing for Paul. The accusations were baseless. So Paul used this as an opportunity to share his story, to share the gospel. We're on the heels now of uh, Acts 27. What has just happened is they have just finished their conversation, and now we see the scene change to Italy. Now, uh, there is a map in your uh, bulletins for those of you here in the service, for those of you watching online, you can Google this map. You can kind of find it. Just kind of Google uh, Paul's journey to Rome um, and you'll find a map, no doubt, that'll help you kind of trace through what's happening here. The map is designed to help you. I didn't put it up on the screen because by the time we put this map on the screen and then it goes on your screens, it's really hard to get the details anyway. But for those of you in the service, I would keep an eye on that map. It kind of helps us understand where he's going and what's happening. Um, let's just pick it up in verse 1. Again, what has happened is this. Paul and Agrippa have just had their conversation and now we see the scene change to Italy. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through these 26, 27 verses and kind of see this uh, crazy story unfold. And at the end, we're going to get two lessons from it, okay? So it's going to be a lot of narrative and then two lessons. By the way, if this was the, um, if the book, uh, if Paul's life was, um, was a movie, this would be one of the parts you would not want to go to the restroom during this scene, right? You know, there's some scenes in a, rest, uh, in a movie where you can just go to the restroom, you know you're not going to miss much. This is not that scene. This is action-packed. We're going to try to keep the momentum going as we kind of unpack what's happening here. We're beginning in verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, we don't know much about this specific 
uh, cohort, but it was common for Roman soldiers to accompany the transport of criminals. Keep in mind, at this point, Paul is still a criminal. He's not a convicted criminal, but he's an alleged criminal with charges pending against him because even though Agrippa said that he would no doubt release Paul under the circumstances, there was a technicality. Anybody remember the technicality? Paul, he appealed to Caesar. So no matter what Agrippa would have decided in that moment, because Paul had raised his, 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 uh, his legal right to appeal to the highest court in the land, even though Agrippa himself would have released Paul from these accusations, Paul still had to stand before Caesar. So they're transporting him to Italy. Uh, these, uh, cr- these criminals that would be on these uh, vessels would be accompanied by Roman soldiers. So we have this cohort that were being introduced. Now, these ships would be filled with grain, uh, grain going from Egypt to Rome. That's what these vessels would be primarily used for. We go to verse two. And embarking in a ship of Adorash, Ador- man, I practiced this this morning, Adramisham, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus and Macedonian from Thessalonica. Again, if you have the map in front of you, you can kind of see where they're going now. Also notice in verse 2, it says, we put to sea. Now, who's writing this book? Luke is the author. So it would appear that Luke was granted access to Paul to go with him, to write with him. And so both Aristarchus and Luke... They're now accompanied Paul. Uh, Paul was allowed to take these companions with him, probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, he wasn't convicted yet. He wasn't convicted. He was only uh, had the charges uh, presented against him. And by and large, his time in custody has been relatively boring. He has been a low-maintenance prisoner. So he was afforded some, uh, some uh, companions to travel with him. Again, this is a vessel that was a grain freighter. It was taking grain from Egypt to Italy. Um, It was about 140 feet long, 36 feet wide, if you can get a picture of it in your mind. It would have had one mast with a big square sail. And instead of what we would think of as a rudder, it steered with two paddles on the back part of the ship. Now, this was a sturdy ship. But it was not intended to sail into the wind. You're going to want to hold on to that piece of information. Because it's going to become relevant in a few verses. We get to verse 3 and it says this. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Putting out to sea from where we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. You're going to see the winds referenced a lot. Again, it would affect their voyage. Verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with, with difficulty off Snidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazia. Now again, the ship first sailed to Sidon, where Paul met with Christians. Uh, He was afforded that opportunity. It's really amazing the amount of favor Paul had, even though he was 
technically uh, imprisoned, that he was under arrest. The, the commander gave him a lot of liberty because he wasn't a condemned man. He was still waiting for his moment in front of Caesar. But really his character and really his love was on display in such ways where they realized he wasn't a threat if he did have a few luxuries. He was different than the other prisoners. The other ones were condemned criminals. Uh, and so the ship began to make its way west, eventually coming to the port called Fair of Havens or Good Harbor on the south side of the island of Crete. Now, verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, we'll talk about the fast in a moment, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. You got to picture this moment. Paul is imprisoned. He's under chains, no doubt, uh, being watched, but he also uh, is afforded some liberties. So if you have a prisoner and you've afforded some liberties, uh, you have told yourselves as the ones imprisoning this person that you trust him a little bit, that there's a little bit of trust being exchanged. Paul now raises his voice and saying, sirs, I perceive that there's going to be a lot of loss, a lot of loss to lives. Uh, We're going to get a lot of injury. This is not a good voyage. Something bad's happening. Um, the fast that was uh, um, uh, noted in verse 9 is the Day of Atonement in AD 59. It's the idea that as winter approaches, the weather became more difficult for sailing. This would have been the first week of October. So the winter is approaching. The weather became dangerous for sailing. Um, and Paul necessarily did not speak here because he was a prophet of God in this moment. He was speaking here probably out of sheer experience. Like, this is not the time of the year we should be making this voyage. The winds are obviously not cooperating. Uh, we've traveled uh, this much, and we've already been off track. If you remember in 2 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 11, Paul did say he was shipwrecked three times. So maybe he wasn't a good sailor. But he had a lot of experience, right? So he's been shipwrecked three times. Um, He knew that sailing at this point was dangerous. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. We come to verse, uh, or we keep reading, um, let's see, verse... Let's see, where to, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So the place where they intended to spend the winter, it was not going to be good. They went a little bit further uh, southwest, northwest, spend the winter there. It wasn't a surprise that the centurion had more respect for the sailor or the owner of the ship, but this would prove to be a deadly uh, scenario for all of them. The name Fair Havens that was given to this place was not entirely accurate, by the way, at least not in the winter. In the different portions of the, of the season, it would have been fair uh, to spend the time there. But during the winter, again, this was not ideal. And as Paul mentioned, the voyage will end with disaster and much loss. We come to verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete all close to the shore. Again, you can follow it on the map. But soon a tempestuous uh, wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. 
And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So again, the winds looked favorable. They sent out from Fair Havens, but just beyond Crete, the wind turned dangerous. The wind was feared among the ancient sailors because of its destructive power, helping to navigate with the face in their wind. All they could do, uh, they were helpless to navigate, I should say. So all they could do is let the boat go whichever way they were going to go. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Things are getting pretty serious. Do we understand what's happening now? So there are um, uh, 150 long uh, feet, 150-foot-long ship, 45 feet wide or so. They had cargo to make it to Italy. And now they're faced with the prospect that if they don't lighten their load, they're going to be completely uh, uh, tossed by this storm. Verse 18, they jettisoned the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So they were in fear of crashing on the Sirtis stands, and so they made them go with the wind and gave hope of navigating the ship in the storm. These were the final thing, two things done to save the ship, throwing the cargo over and then throwing the equipment. And even with this, the ship continued to drive in the wind for many days. We come to verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, they pulled out their Garmin GPS to figure out which way they should go. Yeah, this is a precarious situation. The way they would navigate is with the suns and the stars. They would have maps and they would look at the suns and the, are the suns, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They would figure out where they were in geographical position with, with what the sky told them. And now the weather is getting so intense that now the clouds have come in. There's no sun. There's no stars for many days. And it says this, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So they could only navigate with either the sun or the stars. Many days in their storm drew the crew to desperation. Uh, We'll see later that it says that there's some 276 people on board, both passengers and crew, along with all the grain that they were transporting. And now they are in that point where they're giving up. There's no hope of survival. Luke is taking notes, or maybe he's mentally capturing these moments, but he's saying all of our hope of being saved is lost and abandoned. Uh, We come to verse 21, and he says this, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, I told you so. (laughs) Look at what he says in verse 21. Men... You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. These are some bold words from Paul. Again, up until this point, they haven't taken Paul's direction. There's 276 people on board, passengers and crew. They've already got rid of uh, cargo. They've got rid of equipment. And now he's saying, I told you so. We probably shouldn't have come this far. But I'm here to tell you that the ship will be destroyed, but no one will lose their life. 
Paul could not resist an I told you so moment. But as a messenger of God, he tried to bring hope to these passengers who had given up on all hope. His point wasn't simply to tell them he was right, but to bring them good news. The promise that no life would be lost was hard to believe. I can't believe he really said that. It's kind of one of those scenarios where you're like, is this the right moment to share that information? Paul thought so. He says this, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. It's interesting because Luke doesn't share Uh, the portion where the angel of the Lord spoke to Paul that must have happened in private uh, until Paul revealed it in this speech to the men uh, and to the people that were there. But God has sent a messenger to Paul to bring good news, to encourage him. Again, way back in Acts chapter 9, God had given this promise about Paul saying, he is going to be a chosen instrument for me. He's going to preach to the Jews. He's going to preach to the Gentiles, the outsiders. So he's going to preach to the insiders, to the outsiders, but also to rulers and kings. And Caesar was a representative of this, of course. And so the messenger reminded him, listen, you've still got more work to do. You're still going to present this message to Caesar. You have to stand before him. And in addition to saving your life for this specific purpose, God has granted you the lives of everyone that's with you. And so Paul uses that message from the angel about his own security to share it to the rest of them. The presence of the angel, that messenger, was an encouragement. This was also what Paul remembered because he belonged to God and he served God. And God doesn't forget those who belong to him and serve him. Those are the 26 verses. I want to share with you a couple of lessons from those verses. The first one is hard and it's real and it's applicable. Lesson number one is this. Life is not guaranteed to be easy for those who belong to God and serve him. Church, life is not guaranteed to be easy for those who belong to God and serve him. And Paul's story and really his calamity here proves it. Now, what it does mean is that God has a watchful eye and active care, and he is present even in that kind of calamity. There was a reason Paul needed to go through this. There was a reason he heard from the angel because Paul was also afraid in the storm. Yet in his strong moments, Paul knew that he would make it to Rome because God had promised it. He just didn't realize it would include a storm. He just didn't realize that the storm would actually advance the voyage. He didn't realize that the storm was going to be used as the vessel part in the pun to take him to, uh, to Italy, to Rome. And here's, here's the lesson for us that just because life gets difficult does not mean that you are outside of the will of God. Many times it means this, in order to bring you from the place that you are to the place where you need to be, there might be a difficult voyage or a storm or two between here and there. We, talk, we, we sang about it this morning in that song, um, uh, we can't go back to the beginning, can't uh, predict what tomorrow will hold, so right here in the middle, middle is where you want us to be. 
And sometimes the middle means we're in a storm. Sometimes the middle means we're in this place of chaos. Sometimes the middle means that while we're here in this moment of chaos, we hold on to whatever truths we can hold on to in that moment not because we can go back and change the past, not because we can predict the future, because the moment that we have is all that we're promised. Paul was afraid in the storm. Yet in the storm, here a literal storm, it became easy to doubt and Paul needed the reassurance. This implied that Paul sought God for the safety in everyone on the ship. He had already been promised uh, his own safety, but that wasn't enough for Paul. It would appear to be appear that Paul prayed for those that he was traveling with, and so Paul cared for them. He loved them, and he labored for them in prayer until God granted them safety. Life is not guaranteed to be easy for those who belong to God and serve Him. In fact, if we're doing life well, and what I mean by that is this: if we're following God well we're almost guaranteed for life not to be easy, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, if your life hasn't been easy, or if your life has been easy for an extended period of time, it may be God's blessing or, or, or just a, a season where you get to enjoy that, but it also may, may mean that you need to buckle up and gird up your loins because there's a season coming where it might not be so easy. We, we paint a picture of the gospel sometimes that when we receive Christ, we receive all of his blessings at once. And because we receive all of salvation and because we receive his presence in our life, that from that mo moment forward, our life becomes easy to navigate. Um, quite frankly, it becomes a little bit more difficult to navigate. Because now with the storms, we have the presence of God, and now we have to evaluate in our own life what decisions to make, how to move forward. And Paul here labors on the behalf of the crew as well, and he says, we're all going to shipwright on this unknown island. The ship is going to be destroyed, but everyone's going to be all right because I heard from God. God told Paul that this was going to happen. He gave him this sign. And so Paul couldn't keep this hope to himself. He had to pass it on to both the believers on the ship and those who had not yet believed. It was his declaration to say, I have faith in God. I believe in God, but I also have faith in God. And when we put our faith and trust in God, it allows us to make decisions and move forward in our life in such a way that brings honor and glory to him. Second lesson is this. Paul declared his total confidence in God's knowledge of the situation and his promise in the situation. Paul declared his confidence that God knew about the situation and that he had a promise about the situation. Paul believed God when there was nothing else to believe. He couldn't believe the sailors, the ships, the sails, the winds, the centurion. This was not a fair weather faith. He believed God in the midst of the storm when circumstances were at their worst. Paul would say along with Job, though he slay me, yet will I what? Trust him. The storm and the danger were real, but God was more real to Paul than the dreadful circumstances. So we think about these two lessons and you think, well, life is not always easy and in that moment, Paul declared his confidence that God knew about the situation, and he also had a promise in that situation. 
you know, you think through the Old Testament or you think through the scriptures and some of the stories that we have been accustomed to growing up, and we think, how in the world did these men and women have this kind of faith that allowed them to see God um, as a God who was bigger than their moments? You think about David and Goliath, and you think about that story, right? So David is out in the field when, uh, when he hears the news that his soldiers have gone into battle. And if you read the story in, in, in the Old Testament, um, there is this giant Goliath, and he, and he challenges the armies of God. And he goes out and says, Let's, instead, of, instead of having a war, uh, why, don't, why don't I represent the Philistines, and let's have a champion from Israel come out, and we'll fight, and whoever wins will be the conquering army. Rather than army against army, uh, we're waiting for a champion. We're looking for a champion to come out to represent Israel. And so now Saul and his armies, they just, it kind of just seems like they stall for a while, right? By the way, not a bad plan. Like if they promise not to attack and they're just waiting for one representative, not a bad plan to stall for a little bit, right? So they end up stalling and David goes and he wants to see the action and he brings food and he goes to his brothers and he delivers and says, hey, what's going on? What's the latest? What's happening? Can I, be, can I play? I want to play. I, I want to I I be there too. And so they tell him what's going on and he cannot imagine what's taking the Philistine army so long, are the Israelite army so long to just choose someone to go against Goliath. The story unfolds, and we won't tell the whole story, but uh, uh, they bring uh, David to Saul, and Saul says, well, if you're going to go out there, you might as well take my gear, uh, and tall is twice the size of David at that point in David's life, and they put the armor on David, and he says, man, I can't wear this stuff to go out in battle. I'm going to be fine. By the way, God's on my side. And they go out and you read the story and you say, my goodness. And, and when you look at it from the army, of the Israelite army, they must be thinking, why does David think he can, he can, he can uh, defeat this Goliath? And David's perspective must have been, he's so big I can't miss. <laughs> right? Like if they're giving me this shot, he's so big that I, I can't possibly miss. And we, we see how the story plays out. We were in, um, like I said, we were in uh, Southern California, yes, uh, this last few days. And on, on Friday, uh, my parents were having a good day. And so um, we went to the coast, uh, Libby and I, and with my niece and with my sister. And we went, uh, looked at the pier and just did some people watching and walking around. And what's interesting is because where we parked and then uh, there's a Ferris wheel on this particular uh, uh, pier and they have this huge arcade section and different things. And, and as you're walking up to it, um, everything looks really small, right? Like the Ferris wheel is that big as you're walking up to it. <laughs> and as you walk up on the pier and, and the Ferris wheel gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, uh, and you walk up to it and, and you realize that when you get closer to it, well, there's this huge boardwalk and there's all sorts of things happening and there's artists performing and, and all sorts of things. And when you get up to the Ferris wheel, it's a lot bigger than you first anticipated. And I, I thought about that image when we were flying back on Saturday because I, I began thinking, uh, the closer you are to something, the bigger it appears. 
right? And for a moment, I could, I could put that Ferris wheel in my hand and I could close it and I could put it in my pocket because it was so far away that it was much smaller than I anticipated. And in the same respect, um, while we were there on the pier, uh, we got the, they have uh, vendors that'll just sell you fruit, right? And the fruit in California just hits different, man. It's just, it's so fresh. And so they'll put a, all the fruit in, they'll put uh, these chili spices on it and some lime on it. And Libby and I had that and we were walking along the pier and just observing the beauty. And then we took one picture, <coughs> we took one picture of the fruit a cup. And we took it because we take pictures of our food, you know us. Um, <laughs> you didn't have to laugh that loud. That's <laughs> hurts a little. Uh, we took a picture of that fruit of cup because I just wanted to remember that moment and the sweet lady that had prepared it. And in the background, you know what? There's a Ferris wheel that's so small and blurry because I'm really close to the fruit cup and the fruit cup looks really big because I'm right next to it. You get to decide how big your problems are. You get to decide how big your storm is because you get to decide how close it is. What I mean by that is this. The storm in your life will be raging, will be out of control, and it will be massive. You just have to choose to have God that much closer to you. And if you do, I promise you, he will overshadow the storm. But if, 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 if God for you is in the background, if he's in the periphery, if he's the afterthought, if he's the second thing you look at, if he's in the distance where he's there, but he's not right up close to you, that storm will overwhelm you. And here's Paul. And again, those 26 verses that we read, um, we broke it down and we looked at where they were and we looked at the map and we saw the different ways and like, oh, they, yeah, they removed the car. This was a chaotic 26 verses. And if you were watching it as a movie, uh, you wouldn't have wanted to miss anything because the action was flowing and all of a sudden uh, the storm is coming and, the, and their ship is trying to go this way and they're going towards the island. And now because it's a grain freighter, they're taking all the grain out of it. They're taking all of it and then they decide we got to get rid of the equipment too. So they took all the equipment out. There's 276 people. They weren't all quiet like you are right now. No doubt there's chaos and there's yelling and their chains are being banged against one another. And now there's some friendlies like Luke and Aristarchus are on this ship. And now everybody, everything's happening. And they're like, what do we do now? I don't know. What do we do now? Let's go over here. Let's see if the wind will take us this way a little bit. And they can't go out that way. And they can't go this way. And Paul says, hey, 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 hey. first things first. I told you so. <laughs> Y'all should have listened. But here's the thing. During the chaos, I, I heard from God. And in that moment, Paul's teaching us a lesson that he was much closer to God than he was the storm. And in that moment, because he was closer to God, he heard from God. You know why most of us don't hear from God? There's probably a couple of different reasons. Number one, he's so far away, he's just talking in a still, small voice that you can't hear him. And if for some reason right now, Libby wanted to send me a message from where she's sitting at and she just whispers it, I'm not going to hear her because I'm so far away. And where God usually speaks to us is in a still, small voice. And so you have to keep him right next to you. 
And the advantage of keeping God right next to you and walking with God every single day is that his presence becomes a whole lot bigger than the storm you're about to face. You know, the other reason we normally don't hear from God is because we're, we're, we're listening for the answer we want him to tell us. Right? And if we're already listening for that answer, whatever else he's saying, it's like uh, the Charlie Brown teacher. Because we're waiting for the words we've already prescribed for ourselves. And here in this moment, Paul, who's right next to God, he's, he's with them, he's praying, and so God sends him a message, and now he hears from it, and he says, oh, okay. So then he sends the rest of the crew, by the way, hey, you guys are all right, the ship is going to be destroyed, but you are not going to be. We're going to be okay. Why? Well, because he had faith and confidence that God knew about the situation, and there was a promise for the situation. If the storm of life has overwhelmed you, you need to reintroduce yourself to who Jesus is. He's the God who's in the middle of the storm. And you know how terrified he is of the storm? He sleeps through it. <laughs> right? The storm that's keeping you up at night, the relationship that you can't figure out that is up at night, the parenting issues that you're trying to figure out and, you, and it's just causing you chaos, he's sleeping through those. Not because he doesn't care, but because he already knows. It's not because he doesn't care, it's because he already knows. He's already there with you in that trial. And what he's waiting for you to do is simply go next to him and say, hey, can I have some of that peace that you have right now? Because what you got going on where you're able to sleep through this, this, this chaos, that's the kind of peace I want right now. That's the kind of peace I need right now. This is who Jesus is. So how big, how big is your chaos? It's pretty big. Well, God's that much bigger. Charles Spurgeon had a quote, and he said this. I want to read it slowly because Spurgeon's words carry a lot of weight. He packs a lot. In a, he would have been great on Twitter, by the way, because <laughs> he packs a lot in just a few short words. He says this, I would to God that all Christians were prepared to throw down the gauntlet. For if God be not true, let us not pretend to trust him. And if the gospel be a lie, let us be honest enough to confess it. What he's saying is this. We shouldn't be living this life where we pretend to trust God, and yet we hold everything in our possession. Where we pretend to trust God, but we also worry ad nauseum and cause so much anxiety in our hearts about things that we've said we've prayed about, but we haven't given up. We shouldn't even pretend. Let's not make the gospel a lie. Let's not pretend but let's throw down the gauntlet on our faith. So here's, uh, here's our verse that we're going to embrace this week. John chapter 16 and verse 33. There's three parts to the verse, and so we're going to read them slowly. The first part says this. Let's all read it together. Ready, begin. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Um. Who's speaking here? This is Jesus. If you were to have a version of the Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, where he spoke while he was alive that are recorded by the Gospels, then you'll see that this is recorded in red. These are Jesus' words. It's towards the end of John's uh, Gospel. 
And what Jesus has just foreshadowed to them is a long dissertation between John 15, John 16, and into John 17. John 15, he begins talking about um, that they are the, uh, the vine and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the grooms are the, the vineyard and the, what am I talking about? The vine and the farmer and the one who puts it all together. He also starts talking about the Holy Spirit in John 15. He starts uh, giving them a preview of what it's like to have the Holy Spirit in their life, which also means if they have the Holy Spirit, that means Jesus has died, has been resurrected and is left. So he's previewing all of this information. In John 17, he begins to pray for us. And he's saying, I have told you these things about the future, about the present, so that you may have peace in me. Let's read that phrase again. Ready, begin. I have told you all this so you may have peace in me. So when we pray for people to experience the peace of God, what we're really saying is that they would experience God. They would experience Jesus. When we are encouraging you to dig, down, dig deep and to have peace this week, what we're really saying is this, why don't you take Jesus with you this week, right? Because if you take Jesus with you, guess what you're taking with you? Peace. You have peace in him. So if we are, uh, if we are in him, as Paul likes to say, then we're, then we're there with him in his peace. Then the second part of this phrase says this. So he gives uh, a promise and now a reality. The promise is you will have peace in me Here's the reality. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Well, thank you, Jesus. Appreciate that. <laughs> we all know and recognize this, right? Why does Jesus lay it out so clearly for us? Well, if you look at later in Scripture, in Hebrews, uh, there's, a, there's a phrase, there's a portion in Hebrews 4 where it begins talking about who we have in Jesus. And when it says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. What does that mean? Well, it's a picture of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, in order to bring a sacrifice, you would bring a sacrifice and the high priest or a priest would bless it and, and, and serve it to God on your behalf. But he didn't share your guilt. He didn't share your shame. He didn't share any of the emotions that went in sacrificing that. He just was the middleman. And now in Hebrews, it's saying, man, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with your weakness. In other words, this, uh, the temptations that you've had this last week to, uh, to, to be angry, to be jealous, uh, to lust, to say something you shouldn't say, or to not say something that you should say, all of the temptations you had in the last week, Jesus had those same temptations while he was on the earth, yet without sin. So we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. No, we have the, the, the man Jesus who is our mediator between us and God. And here, this is the acknowledgement from Jesus that says, man, I know here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Why? Because Jesus experienced them as well. Let's read these two phrases together. Ready, begin. I have told you all this so you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. So there's a promise, there's a reality from Jesus, and now the third part. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. 
It's a little promised sandwich, if you will, this morning. I've told you that you'll have peace in me. Here's the reality. There's going to be a lot of heartaches. There's going to be a lot of trials. There's going to be a lot of sorrows. And then another promise, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is saying, and here's, here's your challenge, you need to choose your zip code today. Where are you living? Because in this verse, he's given us two options of where we live. We can either live in Jesus and experience peace, right? Or we can live in the world and only experience trials and sorrows. But you cannot live in two places. So this morning, you have the choice to make. Life's not going to be easy for someone who follows Jesus. It's just not. And you have to choose your zip code. You have to choose where you're going to live in the tension of this world. Will you live in Jesus? And if you live in Jesus, the promise is still the same. You will still have trials and sorrows. But in Jesus, guess what? You get to experience peace, and he overcomes the world. All of the heartache, all of the sorrows, all of the missed opportunities, all of the guilt, all of the shame, he overcomes, but you need to choose to live there. You say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I don't worry. I don't have those heartaches and those troubles. Well, I have lived on this life for 43 years and hopefully a whole lot more to go. And I can tell you this, I can be a Christian and still worry at the same time. I can be a Christian and still disobey God at the same time. I can be a Christian and live on my own at the same time. And it's miserable to do so. Let's say this verse together. Ready, begin. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Trials, sorrows. I want, you to, I want you to think about a trial or a sorrow you're experiencing right now. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a fractured friendship. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's uh, a financial issue. Maybe it's a parenting issue. Maybe your parents are the issue. Uh, maybe there's a work situation. What are the trials and sorrows that you have right now? Some of you, you're going to have faces that come into your mind as you think about those trials and sorrows. As you think about those trials and sorrows, we're going to embrace this verse one more time, and we're going to pray. Everybody got something in their mind? Let's say this verse one more time, and then I'll pray. Ready, begin. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we're thinking about trials and sorrows in our hearts. So for some of us, there's family that has come up in our mind. For some of us, it's friendships. For some of us, it's finances. For some of us, it's work. For some of us, it's, um, maybe it's, maybe it's a mirror. Maybe we see our own self and there's depression and grief and sorrow and there's no one else but it's just the trials and sorrows of living a life that we're dealing with. As we think about how big those trials and sorrows are in our life, I pray 
that even right now, we would readjust our perspective just to see how big, how great you are. You're the creator of the universe. You're the beginning and the end. You're the one that brings life to us. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. You are Jehovah, Jireh. You're the one who provides. You're our banner. You're our strength. You are the Almighty. The Lord of hosts is your name. You're the one who has angels at your beck and call, yet you choose to have a relationship with us. You're the one who was on the mountain that Moses went up to meet with. You were the one that gave him light by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night just so they could find their way. You're the one who provided manna every single day so they would never go without. You're the one who led them out of Egypt and you're the one who led them into the promised land. Land flowing with milk and with honey. You're the one who was present with them through every darkness and moment of silence that they experienced. You were the God who chose to humble himself, to come in the form of man. In Jesus, you were sinless. You lived a sinless, perfect life. You were tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. You would bear the sin of the world, including ours, on a cross. You would be betrayed by your closest friends. You would hung on a tree naked, beaten, forsaken, spit upon, made fun of, and you would die. You would be buried in a borrowed tomb. Not because you couldn't afford one, but because you weren't going to use it that long, were you? You raised from the dead. You defeated guilt, death, sin. You rose victorious. You appeared to the disciples. You ate meals with them. You celebrated communion with them, and then you rose and ascended. And you gave those beautiful words that we would become witnesses after the Holy Spirit is upon us. And even though you ascended, you did not disappear. You show up in our lives every single day. So, Father, whatever the trials and the sorrows that we are going through, may we come face to face who, who you are. You're our Savior. You're our Lord and our Savior. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.